Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman University Book Club reading today from Screw, the Undeclared War Against the Middle Class and What We Can Do About It. This is from uh, one of the last chapters, Chapter 13. It's titled Setting the Rules of the Game in the subchapter Gaming the System. If government can create conditions that cause a middle class to emerge by implementing fair rules for business, progressive taxation, free public education, the opposite is also true. Government can create a corporatocracy by deregulating business, by cutting taxes on extreme wealth, and by privatizing as much of the commons as possible. Conservatives call this starving the beast. Here's how you starve the beast. You put through tax cuts for the rich, which cuts back the revenues of the federal government to the point that if you got rid of all the social programs, you'd have a balanced budget. No more Social Security, no more spending for education, no more spending for Medicare and Medicaid. Let the government simply keep the armies, prisons, and police. Let's shrink government. That's their philosophy. When you cut all those social programs, you lose the middle class and in its place create a very small, wealthy elite and a large underclass of starvation wage workers. You lose democracy and instead create corporatocracy. You change the rules of the game. We the people lose and the feudal lords win. Cons have been winning this particular game of Starve the Beast since Reagan first started seriously playing it in 1981. They've done it in large part by lying to the American people. And they've had to do that because if they told the truth, the majority of Americans would throw them out of office. This is, after all, still a democracy. If the majority of us agree to get rid of Social Security so that only the wealthy can have retirement benefits and the older left to fend for themselves, so be it. If a guy breaks his neck and can't work and the majority of us decide not to help people who are disabled and as a result he has to beg on the street, well, we can democratically decide to screw him and ourselves. But the conservatives are not having this debate in an open and honest fashion. They're not asking we the people if we want to get rid of, for example, the Head Start program. They could ask, do we want to invest in our youth or not? We know that if we invest in educating the very young, fewer of them will become criminals. It will save us money over the long term. But the majority of us say, no, we would rather pay $50,000 to imprison them later than pay $300 to put them in a Head Start. Now, if we said that, then that's fine. It's a democracy. But that's not the way the cons are doing it. Instead of explaining why it would be better for Americans to give all their money to the corporate elite, they're giving huge tax cuts to the rich while pretending that the tax cuts benefit all Americans. Instead of arguing that Americans should not expect the right to health care or security in their old age, they are promoting a government crisis 
by handing to the rich the money we're borrowing from China, Japan, and Korea in the name of our grandkids. They're borrowing so much money from these countries that if they so much as blink, our currency could crash. And that's just what the most ideological of the conservative elite want. They want an economic crisis because they figure that's the only way they can force a cut in spending on social programs. In 2004, they thought that they had starved the beast enough, and they sent Bush out on the campaign trail to advocate getting rid of Social Security, privatizing it, putting it in the hands of Wall Street. But it didn't work. Turns out we the people apparently like Social Security. So the cons went back to starving the beast. Bush instead passed a new series of tax cuts with more to follow. The cons are trying to play the game so that the rich benefit while the rest of us lose out. They get tax cuts, we get program cuts. That's not a free market. That's a market that's being created for the benefit of the rich at the expense of the middle class. The question Americans have faced since the first arguments between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton in the 1780s was whether the game of business should be played with the primary goal of enriching the few or, while allowing the few to enrich themselves, enhancing the quality of the life of the many. The cons suggest that if the rich win first, benefits will trickle down to the rest of us. Protecting workers, they say, will produce abnormalities and dislocations from a so-called free market. For example, they suggest that when minimum wages are fixed by government and labor can lawfully bargain to increase wages by increasing scarcity of labor through union actions, the result is an increase in prices ultimately hurting the working person. But the economists they often cite in this thinking, David Ricardo, disagreed that raising wages first increased prices. He noted, quote, on the contrary, a rise of wages from the circumstance of the laborer being more liberally rewarded or from a difficulty of procuring the necessities on which wages are expended does not, except in some instances, produce the effect of raising price, but has a great effect in lowering profits, end of quote. In other words, all that talk about keeping wages down to keep prices down is a smokescreen. Business owners want to keep wages down to keep profits up. And when wages go down, profits do indeed go up. American wages have been falling steadily since Reagan first reintroduced conservative economics in 1980. And American corporations are generally more profitable than they've been in decades. In part, this is not only because wages are going down within the United States, but also because U.S.-level wages are being replaced by India and China-level wages through offshoring and outsourcing. But offshoring isn't a problem for American workers, the cons shout. It's the increase in productivity. American businesses need fewer workers because of automation. This is a tragic lie, and it's been bought hook, line, and sinker by most American politicians and even some economists. The book is screwed. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolf. Dr. Wolf is the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, democracyatwork.info. His website also rdwolf, W-O-L-F-F.com. Dr. Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So you are a professor of economics, and I would like to, with your permission, uh, basically do a kind of econ 101 class. Are you up for it? 
sure, absolutely. First of all, I'd like to go through some definitions and what these things mean and where these meanings came from and why it's important that we understand them. Like, for example, starting out, what is capitalism and why is it that particularly our political class, but also our media class are constantly conflating capitalism and democracy? What is capitalism literally? What does it mean to be a capitalist? And what does that have or not have to do with democracy? The connection between capitalism and democracy is 100% ideological. It is the effort, which is as old as a modern capitalism, to make an equation, to convince people, to persuade perhaps the people who said it themselves, that bringing capitalism into being as the economic system we live with somehow brings with it necessarily democracy, so that it becomes such a close relationship that the terms even become synonymous with one another in people's speech. In reality, in terms of the strict definition, this is simply not the case. The notion of democracy is much, much older than the notion of capitalism. It goes back at least as far as ancient Greece. It is a word that has Greek roots anyway. It has a simple, basic idea that a democracy exists if and when the people affected by decisions are automatically and by right given the participation in reaching those decisions. So in a simple example, here in the United States, because, say, the mayor of a community makes decisions that affect the people living in the community, they have to participate. And one way to organize that, not the only one, but one way that we use in the United States is we have an annual voting or every other year voting, and that gives the people affected by the mayor's decisions a participation in reaching those decisions, because if they don't like what a mayor does, well, then they vote that one out and vote another one in, etc., etc. So this is a very old idea and really exists separately from the question of the economic system. And I can illustrate it best, again, with ancient Greece. Athens, the place where many people think democracy was born, they were very committed to having popular participation in decisions. They talked about it all the time. However, they were also a slave economic system that divided people into the master and the slaves. And once you study ancient Athenian democracy, you discover that, yes, they were democratic, but they were democratic of, by, and for the masters. The slaves did not participate in any of that great democracy. That was thought to be a completely different and irrelevant matter. So the economic system divided people into slaves and masters. It wasn't democratic in the sense that slaves never participated in any of the decisions that affected them. They were the property of the masters. Now to go fast forward to our own society, the same question arises. Do we have a society in which people participate, and by the way, on an equal basis, that's part of democracy, each of us has equal say with other people about the decisions that affect us. It seems to me crystal clear that it is, I'm going to be nice and polite now, a major stretch to call the United States a democratic society when you consider how many people are excluded from decision-making and how unequal 
we allow people to be in reaching social decisions of all kinds. A person who can buy advertising for whoever candidates they prefer is in a very different position to shape decisions than a person who cannot, and we all know that real well from the United States. And then finally, the capitalist system as an economic system doesn't have masters and slaves, that's slavery. And it doesn't have lords and serfs, that's feudalism. What we have is employers and employees. And when you look inside of an enterprise, a place where goods and services are produced, you can quickly identify who are the employees, who are the employers, and in our system, there is nothing remotely like a democracy between employers and employees to determine what goes on inside the enterprise. We give all of the power to the employer, the family, the individual, the board of directors. That's exclusive of a union. Right. That's right. Exclusive of a union. That's right. Union is, in fact, one of the institutions developed in capitalism whereby the workers, having been excluded from all the effective decision-making inside the enterprise, seek by unifying to begin to have some say over what goes on, particularly over the decisions about wages and working conditions, are rarely much beyond that. Okay, so we have this definition of capitalism. You know, I asked about capitalist. You know, my rant has been basically that a capitalist is a person who makes money off capital. That, you know, Warren Buffett is a capitalist. He invests money and he makes his living off his investments. Paris Hilton is a capitalist. She sits around the pool getting a nice tan while she's waiting for the dividend checks to arrive. But for some reason, these reporters keep walking up to people, including politicians, and saying, are you a capitalist or a socialist? Oh, I'm a capitalist. And I want to go, you know, there's probably only a couple hundred thousand capitalists in the United States. People are just living off their investments. Is that a, a reasonable definition or am I out in space here? No, no, no. You are literally and exactly correct. The number of capitalists, that is, people in a position to employ others. And remember what a capitalist does. He or she starts with a sum of money, let's say $100, doesn't make any difference. And the whole point and purpose of going into production of a good or a service is to come out at the end of the year with more money than you put in. In other words, you laid out 100 to buy inputs and hire some workers, and they produced an output which you sold. And the whole point and purpose of the enterprise is to get more revenue when you sell the output than it costs you to secure the inputs. That's what a capitalist is. And to go up to a, a reporter or a politician who does not engage in what I just described and have him or her say, I'm a capitalist, means they really don't understand what it is they're saying. What they probably mean is they like the capitalist system or they're satisfied with it or it's okay with them. But the notion that they are themselves a capitalist that's simply misunderstanding what the terms mean. Yeah. Also, I'd like to draw a distinction between capitalism, capitalists, 
and free enterprise, if that's an appropriate distinction. I've started, I think, seven businesses in my life that achieved some sort of critical mass. Several of them did very well. This business, let's just use the example of this radio show. Louise and I started this. We had retired. I was living in Vermont. I was just writing books, and you know, we had sold a business in Atlanta to our employees. They paid us out over seven years. And we started this show. The first four or five, six years of this show, we lost money on the show. In fact, we cut our retirement savings by probably three quarters in order to fund the show. Since then, the show has started producing some revenue. We've been able to pay back most, in fact, I think all of that money and, and also take a salary. But I'm not living off money that, well, I guess you could argue that I'm living off money that I invested, but if I don't show up for work, there's no show and I get no income. So it seems in a way I'm kind of a, you know, trapped by my own success. That's not capitalism, or at least it seems like it's not capitalism by my definitions. What is that? Is that free enterprise? Yeah, the problem is you can call it free enterprise, but then there's nothing particularly capitalistic about a free enterprise. The capitalism is if you're the employer, relatively small number of people, and there's a large number, or at least a larger number of people that are your employees. If you're not in that situation, then the term capitalist really doesn't apply if you're going to be careful with your definitions. The reality is that free enterprise is literally unrelated. I'll give me an example. There were loads of slave plantations. They were not run by the government. They were run by private individuals who set up an enterprise using money to buy slaves and put them to work. They had every right to call that, quote unquote, a free enterprise. Uh... You know, a lord in a feudal society could acquire in a variety of ways serfs and operate a plantation with serfs, and that could be called a free enterprise. So the fact that in a capitalist system there are people who don't choose to get slaves in our country because it's illegal, uh, or they don't choose to get serfs because basically it doesn't exist in our society, so the way they carry out their business is by hiring workers. But entrepreneur comes from the French, you undertake to produce some goods and services. You may do it by yourself, you may do it with hired people. If you do it with hired people with the goal of having more money at the end than you started with, then you're a capitalist. Yeah, fascinating stuff. It's Econ 101 here today. Actually, I'd say 202 or 303 with uh, Professor Richard Wolf, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, essays on the global economic meltdown, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, his website rdwolf.com with two Fs, his Twitter handle propwolf. We'll be back as we continue asking about neoliberalism and Marxism and communism and socialism and imperialism and all these things. Stick around. It's been a month or so since we had our, well, actually, we've had several marijuana experts on this program uh, over the years. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, medical marijuana. I'm also a big fan of recreational marijuana. But I, I am a particularly big fan of CBD. CBD is the oil that it, it's, uh, you know, cadabidiol, it's, it's in medical marijuana, but it's also in hemp. And hemp is, doesn't get you high. Hemp is legal to grow in the United States. It's legal to sell this stuff in the United States, to possess it. There's no limits on amounts or anything. It's a completely natural product. And it's a great anti-inflammatory and a great pain reliever. I find it helps me sleep through the night. I've had, you know, back pain since I was in my 20s. And 
um, injured myself skydiving, and CBD really works great. And the brand that Louise and I use and have been using for some time now is New Leaf Naturals. That's N-U Leaf Naturals. It's the highest quality CBD oil on the market, literally. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated. There are no additional ingredients, uh, no additional additives. It's grown right here in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its pure and simple form. And the way to get it, go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U leafnaturals.com. And you'll save 30% off and get free shipping if you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Go to New Leaf Naturals, N-U leafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. Newleafnaturals.com. And to get that 30% discount, which is pretty important these days, use the, use the uh, code and, and free shipping as well. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. NewLeafNaturals.com. Today in the Tom Harmon Book Club, we're featuring The Inner Level by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. It's a new book. The subtitle is How More Equal Societies Reduce Stress, Restore Sanity, and Improve Everyone's Well-Being. Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London who became foreign secretary in Theresa May's conservative government in 2016, was educated at Eton and Oxford. Giving the Margaret Thatcher lecture to a think tank in 2013, he articulated the view that economic equality will never be possible because some people are simply too stupid to catch up with the rest of society. Quote, whatever you may think of the value of IQ tests, it is surely relevant to a conversation about equality that as many as 16% of our species have an IQ below 85. Comparing society to a box of cornflakes, he praised inequality for creating the conditions under which the brightest triumph. Quote, the harder you shake the pack, the easier it will be for some cornflakes to get to the top, end quote. Inequality, quote, is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses that is, like greed, a valuable spur to economic activity. Whether or not Johnson is quite as clever a cornflake as he presumably likes to think, he certainly is not in command of the facts. Nobel Prize winning economists, as well as the OECD and IMF, have shown how inequality, far from spurring on economic growth, leads to stagnation and instability. Social mobility is reduced where income inequality is greatest and far from inspiring innovation. It turns out that there are actually slightly more patents granted per head of population in more equal countries. And as we've seen in the previous chapters, there's also the undeniable human cost of our fixation with keeping up with the Joneses. But Boris is far from alone in his misconceptions about the relationships between inequality and ability. The idea that people are naturally endowed with differences in ability, intelligence, or talent, and that those differences then determine how far up the social ladder they reach, is a powerful popular justification for social hierarchy. The presumption is that we live in a meritocracy in which the key to status is ability. We think of society as shaped like a pyramid. The supposition is that most people are near the bottom or only a little above it because the bulk of the population lack the special talents that we imagine people need to get to the top. The belief that differences in ability are the main influence on where people end up on the social ladder is so strong that we tend to judge everyone's personal worth, ability, and intelligence by their position in society. Nor is this confined simply to how we judge others. It also affects how people see themselves. Those at the top often believe that they're there because they are naturally endowed with plenty of the right stuff just as many of those near the bottom think that their low status reflects a lack of ability. That picture, however, is not supported by the latest scientific evidence. 
First, research now shows that a very major part of what happens to people and where they end up is the result of totally unpredictable influences and occurrences amounting to pure luck. Second, aside from luck, the most important links that exist between ability and status operate in the opposite direction of that imagined by most people. Rather than different endowments of talents determining position in the hierarchy, it's much nearer the truth to say that position in the hierarchy determines abilities, interests, and talents. But let's address luck first. Whether or not we consider ourselves successful, most of us can probably look back across our own life histories and recognize the roles that luck and chance have played in getting us to where we are. We're perhaps lucky with schools or teachers, with the questions on an important exam, with some nameless person dealing with university applications, or we got on well with an interviewer when applying for a job. Perhaps a chance meeting was important, or perhaps an opportunity for promotion came up unexpectedly. Finding a life partner is just as important for our quality of life as our career or income, but we are far happier to acknowledge that chance and luck played a key role in meeting that person than we are in acknowledging luck's role in our career. No one minds mentioning the chance meeting, the circumstances that put you both at ease with each other, or the shared interest that might easily have gone unrecognized. The role of chance makes people's lives highly unpredictable. Although there are huge social class biases and social mobility, there are at the same time vast numbers of people moving up or down the social ladder in ways that even the most detailed analysis of parenting and ability fail to predict. Similarly, although there are differences of perhaps 10 years in the average life expectancy of upper and lower social classes, that explains very little of the individual differences in how long people live. Inevitably, some rich people will die young and some people live in poverty to a great age. And as some public health mavericks used to say, even if you exercised, ate healthy, and didn't smoke, your most likely cause of death was still heart disease. In addition to all this, there may be a large element of chance in whatever our experiences, including subjective experiences, trigger the kind of epigenetic changes affecting subsequent development. Just as the development of weather systems is sometimes said to be so chaotic it can be changed by the flapping of a butterfly's wings, so what amounts to chance events at the social or the cellular level are now thought to play a very substantial part in our lives. So much so, the scientists have worried that if random chance and luck are such important determinants of whether or not an individual becomes sick, gets good exam results, or has a good marriage, it becomes difficult to understand causal pathways at all. The book The Inner Level by Wilkinson and Pickett. Professor Richard Wolf with us. So I remember a phrase that really struck me when I read it back. This has been at least 20 or 30 years ago, and I think I was reading Henry George. It might have been Schumpeter, and I might just be mixing up my old economists or whatever, but it, the phrase was rent-seeking behavior. And this idea of somebody being a, a rentier, I think it would be how it would be pronounced in the French. Can you tell me what that is and what I'm remembering? Yes, you know, the history of capitalism is where these ideas come from. There was the attempt early on when capitalism basically broke out of and revolted against the prior system in Europe, which was feudalism. Uh, there was an attempt to portray the capitalist as that dynamic entrepreneurial person who takes a risk and starts a business and thereby through his own or her own ingenuity and, and stick-to-itness makes a successful production of goods and services for the community. A very positive, a very wholesome, a very attractive image. 
And in that image, there's nobody laying around, as you said at the beginning of the program, getting a nice tan at the pool and cashing in on all of this. That would have been the last image in the world they would have wanted to portray. Here's the problem. Over time, capitalism produces, it always does, a core of very, very rich people. They are a minority, a small minority in every case in the history of the world. They are a small minority, but they accumulate wealth far beyond anything they could conceivably want to consume. After the 10,000, the biggest chateau and the biggest yacht, etc., etc., what do they do? Well, they end up becoming an important player in the society, but in an entirely new way. They don't do anything. What they do is give access to their wealth to other people who use it for productive purposes. But they don't do that out of the goodness of their heart. What they say to other people who are ingenious and who do want to start a business, you have a good idea, you have a lot of energy, but you don't have any money because the money is concentrated in the hands of us rich folks. But we will cut you a deal. We'll give you access for a while to some of what we have, but we'll only do that if you take a portion of whatever profits you get and pay us for having given you access to the money we have. That's called rent-seeking, and the people who do that, who are rich enough to do it, are called rentiers. All that that means is people who live off the rent. These are people who've accumulated money, and typically it's people who've inherited the money from somebody else. They sit with this big pile of money. For example, think of every Rockefeller that we've had since the original John D. All those people inherited wild amounts of money. They make that money available if they choose. They're entirely free to do it or not do it, but they can make it available and demand a cut of whatever is done with it, and that's their rental receipt, and they can live off that really well. We're talking with Professor Richard Wolf. We were just talking about rent-seeking behavior, the rentiers, the people who basically make some of their money available to others or part of their estate. You can live here, part of the field, you can grow things here, part, you know, whatever it may be, as one of the early moments that broke out of feudalism and into capitalism. How has that evolved over the years? Is that what we call modern capitalism? Well, you know, it's changed. This has happened in every place where capitalism came. Sort of the early history goes something like this. A human being has an idea for a product or a service that the community in which he or she lives wants, and they figure out a, a new or a better way to produce it, better quality than exists, lower price to do it than exists, or maybe both. And they go into business and they work real hard, and typically they work hard right alongside the people they employ, and hopefully it all works out really well. The problem is that Lots of people typically do that. In fact, the minute one person does such a thing, it's an immediate incentive for other people to get in on the same good idea and kind of ride piggyback. The end result of that, which capitalism fosters, is what we call competition, the coexistence of multiple producers competing with one another to serve the market. The nice part is that here comes the underside, the other side. 
in that competition, some win and some lose. Some companies figure out how to do a better product or how to do it at a lower price, and the customers go to that one and they leave the other one, and the other one flops, goes out of business. When that happens, the one who won buys the used equipment of the one who's going out of business and typically offers jobs to the people who used to work for the one that went out of business. End result. Out of competition, very few companies are eventually left. And when there's only a few, there's a tremendous incentive for these few to stop competing with one another, because they're all threatened by that, and to get together. Now, that is so prevalent in the history of capitalism that competition usually produces its opposite, namely a monopoly of one or a handful of companies who, in order to stop this process, say, look, if we all get together, then nobody will be able to go anywhere else because we're it. We're the only ones that produce this thing. And then we can jack up the price without fear because we are the only producers of it. And so the result of that kind of a situation uh, is the monopoly. That has happened so frequently and so regularly in every capitalism that there isn't a single country that hasn't had to produce, like we have in America, an antitrust department of the government to stop all of that because it's built into capitalism. Seems like that might be the major thing, the, cap the major area where capitalism needs to be regulated. It's one of the basic ones because otherwise a small number of, of businesses will rip everybody off. It's happened in every industry. There you go. Professor Richard Wolf, The Economist co-founder of Democracy at Work. We'll be back with Professor Wolf in just a moment. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Our book today is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World by Anand Giridardas. This is from the prologue. All around us in America is the clank, clank, clank of the new in our companies and economy, our neighborhoods and schools, our technologies and social fabric. But these novelties have failed to translate into broadly shared progress and the betterment of our overall civilization. American scientists make the most important discoveries in medicine and genetics and publish more biomedical research than those of any other country. But the average American's health remains worse and slower improving than that appears in other rich countries. And in certain years, life expectancy actually declines. American inventors create astonishing new ways to learn, thanks to the power of video and the Internet, many of them free of charge. But the average 12th grader tests more poorly in reading today than in 1992. 
The country has had a culinary renaissance, as one publication put it, one farmer's market and Whole Foods at a time, but it has failed to improve the nutrition of most people, with the incidence of obesity and related conditions rising over time. The tools for becoming an entrepreneur appear to be more accessible than ever for the student who learns coding online or the Uber driver, but the share of young people who own a business has fallen by two-thirds since the 1980s. America has birthed the wildly successful online book superstore called Amazon, and another com company, Google, has scanned more than 25 million books for public use, but illiteracy has remained stubbornly in place. And the fraction of Americans who read at least one work of literature a year has dropped by almost a quarter in recent decades. The government has more data at its disposal and more ways of talking and listening to citizens, but only one quarter as many people find it trustworthy as in the tempestuous 1960s. A successful society is a progress machine. It takes in the raw material innovation and produces broad human advancement. America's machine is broken. When the fruits of change have fallen on the United States in recent decades, the very fortunate have basketed almost all of them. For instance, the average pre-tax income of the top tenth of Americans has doubled since 1980. That of the top 1% has more than tripled. And that of the top 0.001% has risen more than sevenfold, even as the average pre-tax income of the bottom half of Americans has stayed almost precisely the same. These familiar figures amount to three and a half decades worth of wondrous head-spinning change with zero impact on the average pay of 117 million Americans. Meanwhile, the opportunity to get ahead has been transformed from a shared reality to a prerequisite of already being ahead. Among Americans born in 1940, those raised at the top of the middle class and the bottom of the lower middle class shared a roughly 90% chance of realizing the so-called American dream of ending up better off than their parents. Among Americans born in 1984 and maturing into adulthood today, the new reality is split screen. Those raised near the top of the income ladder now have a 70% chance of realizing the dream. Meanwhile, those close to the bottom, more in need of elevation, have a 35% chance of climbing above their parents' station. And it's not only progress and money that the fortunate monopolize. Rich American men, who tend to live longer than the average citizens of any other country, now live 15 years longer than poor American men who endure only as long as men in Sudan and Pakistan. Thus, many millions of Americans on the left and right feel one thing in common, that the game is rigged against people like them. Perhaps this is why we hear constant condemnation of the system, for it is the system that people expect to turn fortuitous developments into societal progress. Instead, that system in America and around the world has been organized to siphon the gains from innovation upward, such that the fortunes of the world's billionaires now grow at more than double the pace of everyone else's. And the top 10% of humanity have come to hold 90% of the planet's wealth. It's no wonder that the American voting public, like other publics around the world, has turned more resentful and suspicious in recent years, embracing populist movements on the left and the right, bringing socialism and nationalism into the center of political life in a way that once seemed unthinkable, and succumbing to all manner of conspiracy theories and fake news. There is a spreading recognition on both sides of the ideological divide that the system is broken and has to change. Some elites faced with this kind of gathering anger have hidden behind walls and gates on landed estates, emerging only to try to seize even greater political power 
to protect themselves against the mob. But in recent years, a great many fortunate people have also tried something else, something both laughable and self-serving. They've tried to help by taking ownership of the problem. All around us, the winners in our highly inequitable status quo declare themselves partisans of change. They know the problem and they want to be part of the solution. Actually, they want to lead the search for solutions. They believe that their solutions deserve to be at the forefront of social change. They may join or support movements initiated by ordinary people looking to fix aspects of our society, but more often these elites start initiatives of their own, taking on social change as though it were just another stock in their portfolio or another corporation to restructure. The book, Winners Take All, by Anand Giridharis. Dr. Richard Wolff is with us. We're talking economics here in the broadest sense. And Professor Wolff, one of your most recent books is titled Understanding Marxism. In fact, I think it may be your most recent book. Yep. Um, who was Karl Marx? What is Marxism? Why should we care? Okay, great question. Let me go in reverse order. Why should we care? Well, every country on earth today has in it Marxist organizations, Marxist trade unions, Marxist political parties, Marxist journals. It's part of the world we live in, and sticking our heads in the sand and refusing to engage it doesn't make it go away. It just means we don't understand what it's all about. That's number one. So that's the reason to do it. The number two country in the world economically, with which we are in increasingly difficult relationship, the People's Republic of China, is officially, by its own declaration, a Marxist-inspired and Marxist government. If no other reason made it be important to understand what, all that, what those words mean, that alone ought to do it for you. Now, as to Marx himself. Very interesting. He was born in early in the 19th century, 1818. He died at the end, 1883. So he really is a 19th century man. He grew up in Germany, in the western part of Germany. He went to college, which a tiny number of people in those days did. He became a professor of philosophy. That's what he studied. But he got caught up in the economic struggles of Germany in the middle of the 19th century. They had a big revolution there in 1848. Indeed, they had that all over the world. And he got caught up as a young man in all of that and turned his interest to economics. And here's where it gets kind of interesting. He was a young man, and typical of his generation, they loved, and this is important for Americans to understand, they loved the American and French revolutions. The idea that a new world was dawning in which liberty, equality, and brotherhood, the slogans of the French Revolution, and democracy, uh, the slogan of the American Revolution, this was what they all loved. This is what they wanted to bring to Germany, which hadn't yet had it, and they were the generation of Germans that were going to bring it to them. They understood very well that in the French Revolution, the old system, feudalism, was dead and gone. And the new system, capitalism, was going to replace it. No more lords and serfs, no more masters and slaves. A new world of employers and employees working together in enterprises that would somehow usher in liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy. But here was the problem. 
by the middle of the 19th century, a good 60, 70 years after the American and French revolutions, Marx, like his contemporaries, looked around the cities, the countrysides of Western Europe, and they said, well, we do have capitalism. It certainly pushed out slavery and feudalism, and that's a good thing. But delivering to us liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, no way. We don't have that. We have inequality. We don't have real democracy. We don't give people a chance to really control collectively and equally what happens to them in their lives. And so Marx's quest became simple. How do you account for capitalism, which promised to bring with it liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, didn't do it? It betrayed its promise. And Marx's life work is to explain why that happened. Hmm. And, And his conclusion is what makes him so famous. He concluded that the reason capitalism couldn't and did not bring the democracy, liberty, equality, fraternity it promised was because of internal contradictions, internal characteristics of capitalism that were not faced up to and that blocked the achievement, the sincere promise of early capitalists to bring those things were frustrated, were betrayed, and the basic argument is this. You can't get liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy if you allow inside each capitalist enterprise a tiny group of people, a very small minority, to call all the shots. The owner, the board of directors, the shareholders, they're a tiny number of people in any corporation relative to the mass of the employees. And if you allow that minority to have the power to decide what the enterprise produces, how it goes about producing it, where the production takes place, and what is done with the profits that everybody's labor helps to produce, well, you're going to see what we get, which is a society that serves those at the top real well. They're the ones who call the shots. They make the economic system work for them. But for the rest, not so much. So I think most Americans, if you said Marxism or communism, for that matter, would point to Joe Stalin and, you know, the death of 20, 30, 40 million people would point to China and Mao's rebooting of communism in the 1960s and 70s that led to a massive famine. I think 34 million people died. How has Marxism gone wrong or has it been implemented bad? I mean, what how do we square that circle or whatever the phrase, the cliche is? Well, you know, once you develop a set of ideas, and this has been found by every set of ideas, and you launch your new set of ideas into the world, it's a little bit like having children. They're their own people. They go their own way. They may not go in the direction you hoped for or thought they might. They will be picked up by people, sometimes quite sincerely, who take them in a direction you didn't believe in, or sometimes very cynically, simply used by people. Let me give simple examples. How many people want to question their commitment to Christianity because in Spain, over a certain period, you had an inquisition that killed large numbers of people who didn't abide by the particular Roman Catholic theory that governed in Spain at that time? Or do you want to blame Nazism on Christianity because all of the leaders of Nazi Germany were Christians, many of them 
quite believing Christian. No, you can understand that there are people and social movements who take up, who take the mantle, if you like, of an idea, often a beautiful idea or a good idea, like there are within Christianity and so on, and take them in directions that horrify you, that seem to others within the tradition to be the, the opposite or the anathema of what happened. I'm not excusing what happened in Russia or China that you just mentioned. That's not my point. My point would be that that has to be accounted for, but that's just part of the larger Marxian tradition. There's lots of other examples of where the Marxian tradition did all kinds of other things. I mean, maybe the harsher way to put it is the worst wars in the history of the human race were World War I and II. Those were wars organized by, fought by, imposed by societies in which capitalism was the dominant economic system. Mm. If I'm going to say, gee, if I'm going to start counting dead people by the millions, am I going to count what was done by Europeans in Asia and Africa and Latin America over 400 years of colonialism? I mean, if we really want to go in that direction, we're going to get ourselves very depressed, but we're not going to be depressed only about what happened in bad news in Marxism. We're going to have to see it kind of everywhere. I don't think it's very productive. I think there's no guarantee that if you go in any particular direction, you will not see people abusing it. You have to stay honest to what brought you to it. The Marxian image, the Marxian idea, what makes me interested in it always has, is the notion that we can do better than capitalism. The irony is capitalism came about when people thought we could do better than slavery, when we could do better than feudalism, that the human race had a better way to organize its life. That was progressive. We all celebrate that. But the idea that under our system now, history stops. We can't do better. We have nowhere to look for ideas and models. That's just crazy. That's what people did who didn't want slavery to end. That's what people did who didn't want feudalism to end. They wanted to believe it was the end of the world. We now know better, but it would be a shame if we tried to apply to our system what we know didn't apply to any other system. So what are the lessons from Marxism that we can and should apply or do apply? I mean, you know, is Social Security a reflection of Marxism or is the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, the authorization, the legalization of unions, is that a dimension of Marxism? Absolutely. I think Marxism, despite the effort to kill it off, to pretend it died, Marxism is everywhere. That's why I began by mentioning it exists in every country on earth. Of course it has influences. I like to use really simple examples. I live in New York City. In the middle of New York City is actually several magnificent parks, but the one I want to talk about for a moment is Central Park. It is the pride and joy of the city of New York. It's an immense park. It's very interesting how we've organized that in this city. There's no money to pay. You can enter the park at dozens of different entrances. You go where you want, when you want. You bring a blanket. You put it down on the lawn. You have a picnic with your friends or relatives. It is a, here we go now, collective social service. Anyone, rich or poor, young or old, white or black, goes into the park, and we enjoy what? We enjoy in New York not just the greenery and the nice ponds and, and the beautiful way it is maintained, very clean and all of that, but we really do enjoy, and I think most of New Yorkers would tell you this, we enjoy the solidarity of it, the fact mm. that 
people who are different from you, have a different music and eating a different picnic, are 20 feet from you, that everybody is together, that there's a kind of solidarity. It's a wonderful thing. Public schools in many places have that function. How, how is this different from the commons? I mean, aren't you describing the commons? Exactly. It is the common. It is that old idea. And, you know, Marx, who thought that the commons was the model for how we would organize our enterprises. Let's get together and be equals, one with the other. Let's talk about what we want this company to do. Let's talk about what technology to use. Let's talk about what we have all produced here and what is to be done with it. It'll make us whole as human beings. We don't want to be the drones who come five days a week, nine to five, being told every step of the way what to do by people over whom not only do we have no control, but who could fire us at a moment's notice and, and deprive our families of support. This is not a way that we need to organize production. It shouldn't be imposed on us. Capitalism has achieved a number of things. No one denies it. It's a technologically progressive kind of system. It develops new technology. That's the good part. Can we hold on to the good part, but get rid of the inequality, the instability, the fundamental injustice of having a, a system serve so disproportionately well the minority at the top, while the rest of us are wondering, can we handle the, the loans that are necessary to give our kids a college education? It's that impulse. And, you know, the word communist has the same root as the word community or the word commons. It's this notion that a society has to be built, a relationship amongst us has to be built, and that's what socialism is about. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Book Club today, we're reading from Edward Nell's new book, Progress and Poverty in Economics, the subtitle Henry George and How Growth in Real Estate Contributes to Inequality and Financial Instability. This is from the introduction, which is subheaded, Reviving the Work of America's Most Original Economist. Andrew Mazzone and I collaborated on a project to review the work of the 19th century American economist Henry George especially his landmark book, Progress and Poverty, 1879, to see how George's work stood up in the light of modern economics and to determine what could be brought up to date and applied to the contemporary world. We wanted to establish that George's work was relevant and also to criticize American academic economists for having overlooked or rejected George, both in his own time, when his work was a worldwide sensation, and afterward, even today. 
Andrew died suddenly in the middle of the project. This book is a tribute to him and completes what we began. George began his career as a, an author and public personality with progress and poverty, arguing that progress brought poverty in its wake and that poverty might even outpace progress, an important original point of view that has not lost any of its relevance since George's time. In fact, in our age of burgeoning inequality, it may be more relevant today than ever before. The grounds for this paradoxical interlinking of progress and poverty lay in the effect of rising rents. For George, rents were payment, not for the use of land in the usual sense, but for pure access to specific places and locations. But why should some people have the right to limit others' access to the use of the earth? Surely it belongs to us all. Worse, the limiting of access by demanding payment would undermine the benefits of innovation and hard work. To prevent this linking of progress and poverty, George said a major policy shift in taxation was required. This is well known among economists as the Georgist single tax on rents, or the Henry George theorem. Economists have given George short shrift, which is a shameful oversight. He has much to teach us. He was uniquely American, perhaps our greatest economist, certainly our most original. He is justly famous and heralded in the 19th century, and his book Progress and Poverty, which is the source for much of our analysis on these pages, was the best-selling book on economics of that entire century. The book Progress and Poverty in Economics by Edward Mell. So, Professor Wolf, I think his name was Garrett Harding or something like that. He wrote a, an essay years ago called The Tragedy of the Commons that argued that whenever you have a commons, like Central Park, for example, eventually a whole bunch of greedy people are going to exploit it, uh, overexploit it, and uh, it's going to collapse. What's your response to that? Well, you know, that's a grim view of human nature. I've always understood, every time I've tried to explain what the goals of socialism and communism have been, after we get through the distortions that have happened and being fair about those being part of what has to be dealt with, we get to the, the better part of it, the hopeful part of it, the goals of it, and then I am greeted with someone who says, well, it's a very nice idea, it's a very nice goal, but it can't be done in practice. Well, you know, I don't know whether what can or cannot be done. I think the human experience is trying to do it as well as we know how. Will there be people, when we have a commons, who abuse those commons, who try to turn it a common property into a private property, a common space into a space for only a few? My guess is, yes, there will be those. And then the question is, will the rest of us, who see and understand that risk, will we be able and willing to step up and say, hey, the whole point here is to do something else. I have been, and I suspect most of the people listening or watching us, I have been in a lot of experiences where what you just said is a risk. It starts to happen. And then I've seen people step up and say, you know, that's not helpful. And enough of us were there enough of the times that I'm left with the feeling it's important to define what we want to have happen 
and to move in that direction. And yes, there will be bumps and there will be people who want to pervert or distort it. And that is a struggle we have to engage in in order to realize the image of a different kind of society, a different kind of workplace that's democratic and cooperative. I'm reminded, if, you, if I could end this way, with the person who said something, and the person I pick may surprise you, Winston Churchill. He was asked, what does he think about democratic government? And he said, well, it's messy, it's awkward, it's slow. And the only thing you can say for it is it's better than every alternative. Right. And I love that. I think that he was right about it. The only difference between him and me, I want to apply it to the workplace, where right. people spend five out of seven days of their life. Most of their adult life is either at work or getting ready for work or recovering from work or planning or educating themselves for work. If democracy is something we really value, then for me, the promise of socialism is the commitment to bring democracy finally to the workplace where it should have been in the first place and where its absence has not done capitalism very much good. Yeah. You know, the commons can be exploited or the commons can be, it seems to very often just kind of work out. Are you suggesting that a light touch regulation of the commons might solve the proverbial tragedy of the commons, just like certain levels of regulation of capitalism, for example, your anti-monopoly laws or anti-worker exploitation laws or laws that you know, allow labor unions to have power, that those things might diminish the damages that are produced by capitalism. Yes, as far as I can see, every group of people, whether it's a chess club or a sporting club or a business, when you get groups of people together, you have to come up with rules of some sort so that you can work together. Don't work at cross purposes, don't stumble over each other, get in each other's way, get on each other's nerves. So you develop some rules and you kind of agree these are the rules that we're going to live by. And then you can set up a machinery, you can call it a government if you want, but set up a system that kind of enforces the rules. So that if person A thinks person B has not played by the rules, there's a place to go to, to talk it out and to reach some sort of settlement. Every community I know of has done that in one way or another. It should be done democratically. It should be done fairly and transparently. But I believe that communities put these rules in order to realize the kinds of community they want to live in. And if you wanted to make it socialistic or communistic in the good sense of a community of an equal democratic participation in the decision making, I think we can develop the rules as human beings to do that. You know, worker co-op businesses have existed for centuries. They're doing perfectly well. They've existed for a long time. Spain today has something called the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation. It's the seventh largest enterprise in all of Spain. I've been there. Uh, it has over 100,000 workers. It has managed it and done a pretty good job. Yeah, I've been there. I, uh, Louise and I went there and we wrote a, a whole chapter about it for my book, uh, Threshold. And so, there are other examples that I think people don't have to be pessimistic because we have real evidence that this can work very well. There you go. Professor Wolf, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Tom, and it was good to talk to you.
Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for being with us today. Also, it's a remarkable day. We'll continue as we go along. But in the meantime, please don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy is, is, was never even designed as a spectator sport. It requires you, our democratic republic. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 